You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I want to invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 4, continuing our study of Genesis. If you're just joining us, there's a map on the screen that catches us up. Uh, I'm sorry, you came to the wrong week because we are in the middle of one of the darkest, most unredemptive, unrepentant seasons of kind of Bible uh, history. And it's, it's there for a reason. If you look up on the screen here, the, the next four, you know, six chapters rather that we're looking at from four to 11, well, that's seven chapters, is all about the spiraling cascade of evil in the hearts of men, in their thoughts, in their being, in their action. It's just showing that when God's not involved, it doesn't get better. It always gets worse until it gets to be the absolute worst. And so if you look on the screen here, there's a visual picture, right, of a big spiral that's all going downwards that never goes upwards. And it's this kind of uncontrolled, unmitigated, chaotic thing that takes hold of the human heart the second, the second, the moment that the original humans, the prototypes, Adam and Eve, took that fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, which we've which defined as simply this. It's just living life apart from God, living life in autonomy, the decision out of trusting God and the decision into taking control for myself and defining my own version of right and wrong, that I might be my own little king, my own little queen. And, and so what we see there is that, uh, that actually it can get way worse than just taking a, you know, a tree off of a fruit or just being ashamed you know, and having a fig leaf in front of me or just projecting and blaming on my wife. Like It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It, it reminded me of um, this. Uh, crazy animal planet story that I saw one time on TV. It's at two in the morning when you're not supposed to be watching TV. You'll see something on National Geographic will haunt you when you're a little kid. It was like this, uh, this bee and the spider getting a fight, okay? Sounds like a bad joke. Uh, but the bee was like the size of a hawk. Like it was in Africa and just the fall is, I don't know what's going on out there. But the bee is this, this massive. It's like the size of a cat. And then, uh, you know, this, uh, this little spider's crawling around and it's pretty big. It's like a little size of a dog. And so they're in this fight and this is, and it's just these dive bombing fight and they tumble around and they, and the little Australian guys is like, oh, look at it, crikey. The bee's just uh, getting violent here with the spider. Oh my gosh, who's going to walk away and all this. And, uh, and then, boom, and then it's over, and the bee just flies off into the distance, and, uh, and then the spider just rolls over and, like, and, and runs off. And he's like, and he's like, and to the naked, untrained eye, we think that nothing's happened, but uh, exactly something really deep and dark that's happened here. And they'll cut to this next scene, and this is where, like, you animal people love it, and I just hate, I love, I love animals, those ones. Uh. So... So, uh, and anyway, so it's like uh, the, the little spider's on his back, and he's like, and then, and, and, and then all of a sudden, it's like a zipper from like the top of his head all the way down to his, to, to his belly just bursts open. This seam just comes open in the spider. All these bees just like fly out of this carcass of a spider, you know, because the bee actually impregnated, happy Sunday, welcome to City Lights, impregnated uh, this poor cat-sized spider and used it as this embryo or something like that. I mean, isn't this, isn't this sick, right? And so that's the picture I want to put with you guys. You think of sin, Sharon said, it is horrible. That's right. I've done my job. Um, is, is like, is, you know, you're reading chapter, chapter three and you're like, there's this eerie iciness, like God made everything. We screwed it up. And he's like, it's about to get bad. And, and, right. And so then you're reading and you're like, okay, like, you know, and you get in trouble with your parents. Like, how bad is this going to get? Like, is this, you know, like, are we just going to be afraid to be naked now and yell at God sometimes? I mean, like, how bad can this get? And, and we turn into this first page, and this is where we're in chapter 4, verse 1. If you look over here, Cain, Abel, and Lamech, uh, down here, that, that story there, and we, and we see it's like, it's really bad. Like, it gets really bad, really fast. I mean, that's like, you know, we, we isolate the, we talked about this, but you isolate the different stories and these anecdotal things, and we don't put the thing together, we don't see the larger scope. It's saying like, it's like first base of sin is really bad. It's not even when you go around the bases. It's like you turn the page, you ate the apple, and then there's fratricide or something, like the killing of, the murder of a brother within family happens literally within the span of one page. All right, that's the picture we're supposed to get. All right, this is going to sound unrelated, but I'm going to read you a little Great Gatsby. Okay, so Great Gatsby, uh, they'll hand you this in sophomore year uh, in high school, and you either love it or you're like, why are we reading? What is this about? Okay, and, and I want to show you this just because it, it helps us understand the, it's the literary style of the Bible. I just want to show a contrast really quickly. So this is just a page out of the, out of the great Gatsby. And, 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 the, and the truth is, like, when you think, like, this is how all American literature is. Like, we're functioned and formed to read books that are like the great Gatsby. They pick the Gatsby because it's classic American realism, and they give it to you, and it represents really the really clear 
clairvoyant uh, expression of what American literature is all about. So here's this paragraph, and these are paragraphs. So there's, there's paragraphs like, you're going to ask, like, what happened in this? There's nothing that happened in the paragraph, but the author's going on. Now look, so it says, he's talking about Gatsby, Escott, Trigerald. He smiled understandingly. Listen to how much detail is in this. He smiled understandingly much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in a lifetime. It faced or seemed to face the whole eternal world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice of favor. That's Gatsby's charm. That's his, um, that's his uh, charisma. Uh, it understood you just as far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to be believed in yourself and assured you that it had precisely the impression uh, that you at your best had hoped to convey. I mean, this, this is when, you know, Jock, the football guy, is just asleep drooling on the, on the table as the English teachers talking about this and pontificating about all this stuff, right? Like, you read books like The Hobbit, you read books like The Lord of the Rings, you read books like this, there's this inundation of, like, over-detail, right? Isn't that what you're getting from this? It's like every line is just, just painted with, like, you know, like the internal dialogue and the monologue and the characters and the emotion. This is how American literature works. They want you to almost have too much detail, like, they're giving you things you might not even use because they want you to get this, the feeling that you're not on a movie set that you could go behind and there'd be something unreal about it. They want us to get layers and depth of this belief that this thing's like a real world and they want you to live in the real world. Now, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 4, and that helps us read, and we're going to get into the scriptures as well. But just look, at, just look at Genesis 4, 6, 7, and 8, and just contrast it. Look at this passage compared to this passage from the Gatsby Thing that we read. Look at this, uh, just one little brief couple verses. Basically, I'll, the overlay here is there's three verses, six, seven, and eight. That's all we're going to look at just in the beginning here. Cain is mad in six. God says he shouldn't be mad in seven. And then Cain kills Abel in eight. In three sentences, he got more done than the whole entire Great Gatsby book in just one thing, right? What is that? Good, bad? Let's, let's think about that for a second. But th- these are the verses. Verse six, The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. Whoa, like what does, like, you know, do you not have, I have so many questions in my mind right now. Like if you just read this at face value and the Bible teacher hasn't taught you, you're so like, you you get the idea of what's going on, but there's a whole bunch that's not there, right? Verse eight. And now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field while you're in the field. Cain, while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother. Abel killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Like, so, so look at this. In three, in three things, three verses, you have an entire like, motive of a character, anger and intent. If it was a Breaking Bad series, it'd be seven episodes long, right? Like, he's, he's mad about it. We don't know why. And then he just lashes out, takes his brother, and he kills him. I mean, we were just in Eden, and now we're killing people. And there's no... There's no explanation between those, those lines, right? And this is, this is, this is how we feel because it, you, you come away with answers in the scriptures, but you also come away with a ton of questions. Like, what, what, like what, how did we even know we're supposed to sacrifice anything in the first? Like, who are they, who are they sacrificing? What are they sacrificing? What, like, I thought the last time that I heard that the obedience of the Lord is supposed to, you know, take care of the animals and rule over them. Now all of a sudden we're killing the animals. And I didn't get a memo as to... Were we supposed to kill the animals? Is there supposed to be sacrifice? Like, is there supposed to be a, a system of hierarchy of, like, better, best, worst sacrifice? Like, there's so many questions about this. And then favor. I mean, goodness gracious. Like, that's, that matters in your interpretation of this passage. Like, what does it mean for one person to have favor and another person not to have favor? Does that make God unjust if he has favor of one person or another? Is he playing favorites with Abel instead of Cain, right? It, it brings up a lot of this kind of, like, tension. And, and I bring that before you today just to call it what it is because uh, as much as we tend as modern readers to think that our way is the best way and it's the only way, we have to, like, the truth of this is the people that wrote the, these, these scriptures are just as smart as us. Like, like, we tend to think, oh, they must have lost some of the lines and, like, you know, we'll just have to deal with the fact that there is a failure to communicate and these guys aren't. No, like, these guys were, were genius, very obviously poetic. Every word, every letter is clearly defined. I mean, even the way that they scribed it, they're throwing away pens if they write it the wrong way. I mean, they're very, this is the sacred, this isn't Great Gatsby. They are more inclined to write accurately and persuasively and, and timelessly than any other time. I mean, these people are writing with a purpose. They're writing with intent. And so what is, what is the purpose? And so I'm presenting to you, this is the idea, like, like the, the, the Western idea is to present uh, liter- literature in a way that makes statements, but the Jewish meditative literature is written to ask questions. 
And that's where we stumble. That's where it's so difficult to, to us as Western readers is because, because we don't, we don't want to leave writings with more questions than we have answers. We want to leave them with answers. We don't want to leave with kind of tension and questions. But that's, that's what the writers are doing. And I'm listening to like this, actually this um, psychiatrist, like, like super smart, like um, Stephen Hawkins level psychiatrist guy. And he's talking about this, this scripture. He's a secular dude. He goes, in 16 verses, the problem of evil and the issue of sin and the issue of, 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 of jealousy and discord in 16 verses is no less than a mastery of writing. Like this writing is so potent and so profound. Why? Because instead of, instead of you know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, what's that director's name? Um, uh, Hitchcock, when Hitchcock talks about the idea of just like leaving things in the dark, instead of filling in the gaps of imagination, it leaves the imagination to the reader, demanding they come into the story with the rest of the characters, and the story becomes not just a statement, but a mirror of their inner dialogue and debate. And he's like, so when you read the, the Gatsby idea, you walk away with what Escott Gerald wants you to think, but when you leave the Cain and Abel story, you're forced to wrestle with God over what he wants to say about that issue. That's exactly how Jesus taught in parables. And that's exactly how Jesus talked to people and led people through questions and not statements because he doesn't want you to walk away with an idea. He wants you to walk away with an interaction. He wants you to chew, as the Psalm 1 talks about, in meditating of the scriptures. He wants to chew on it the whole entire day, not just for 10 minutes. He wants you to take that thing and be like, why was Cain so mad? And, 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 why, and, and what, why didn't God help him out in that? And, and is God unfair if he gives favor to one? That's the kind of thing you're supposed to, to carry with you and reflect on life and talk to God and then read the rest of the scriptures. And it annoys the heck out of us as American readers, to be honest, because we want the answers. And it doesn't. It presents questions. And I'm just telling you that as we talk because this is, this is intentional. It's not, it's not an accident. All right, so let's start from the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. And she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to um, uh, his brother, Abel. Um, so it's a light little detail here, but still kind of important for the bigger idea of reading Scripture, but also this story. So just one second here. But the, the, the line that we'll look at in, in verse 1 is, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. There's a, there's a, con, uh, there's a, there's a word in there, um, the, uh, the, the word that combines the two clauses of the sentence, E.T., just says at, and it's confusing as to what... <clears throat> Eve really means when she says, with the help of the Lord. Um, that word, et, the Lord, Yahweh, could mean a couple of things. It could mean literally, like as, as it says off the page, like I had a baby and God helped me. Or it could mean I kind of had the baby uh, on my own. Or it could be like a, in the sense when you say you should have no other gods besides me, et, besides. It could just mean I had a baby without the Lord. No matter the case, no matter the case, you can clearly see that on verse 25, by the end of the story, when she has another baby after Cain and Abel, she has this other one named Seth. If you look at, uh, if you scroll down on your phone, because I didn't send it to the screens. But um, chapter 4, verse 25, it says, um, Adam made love to his wife again. Now watch this contrast. As she gave birth to um, a son, she named it Seth. And look at how the difference is. The first sentence says, with the help of the Lord, I had a man. And some people even think, I had the Messiah, I had the snake crusher. That's what some people would think and interpret there. But with the help of the Lord, like, eh, with a little help of the Lord, you know, a little help of my friends, like, I had a baby. Look at how much this is different. By the time she experiences the loss and trauma and spiraling, you know, uh, execution of, of the warning of, of Genesis chapter 3, it says this, God has granted me another child. It's a totally different verb. So we've gone from, I've had a, a child with the help of God, to it's only God that brings life. And this is important because, because actually, it's not just the story. It's all of the stories you look at all the, and we'll look at it in Genesis because it really matters in terms of heritage and lineage. Consistently, consistently and principally, like, like when people have kids and when people even do work in the Lord, they never get it right the first time. This is the lesson learned here that we'll take with us. Like, like if you look at Isaac and you look at Abraham and you look at Jacob, they're never, they're never the firstborn. They're never the firstborn. And it's not because of hereditary difference that God just kind of flippantly just says, well, I like middle kids better or baby kids better. It's like, no, it's not a birth order thing. It's specifically because, because, because by virtue of the way that humans operate, we tend to need to go through a couple knocks in life before we realize that we need and depend on God. And so this is what he's saying you know, to us today. Let's for, for example, it's like if this is your first job, if this is your first kid, if this is your first marriage, et cetera, like, you know, if this is the first time to do anything, we typically tend to lean on ourselves. And how many of you guys know that typically when you go to grad school and you're, and you're paying your own bills this time rather than your parents, if you are on a second marriage, if, if you are having your second kid, you kind of treat that, that opportunity a little bit different. 
Because the, the, the blows of life and the kind of things of life tend to humble you in that way. And so this is, this is why Jesus always says the second, will, you know, the last will be first. I'm going to use the foolish things of, of the world to shame the wise. This is the biblical idea beyond the, the garden. that I just paint that thread for you to kind of hang on to as you look at this story as well as other things that you would read. But, but so we continue on. We keep an eye on the idea of Cain and Abel and Cain being the first one and Abel being the second. Abel in Hebrews being mentioned as the one that's faithful and Cain not. All right, so verse uh, 2 didn't want to get too distracted by that, if you jump back on board with me. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also, also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with, fa- with favor. So Cain was quite angry, and his face was downcast. So what we do as Bible readers is we have a bunch of gaps there, like, like, is it better to have sheep? Is it better? We want to find the pattern. Like, we want to find the pattern and apply. That's what we want to do. And create the theory and apply it to life. And so we, we start to fill in the gaps. And it's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, Cain was like, you know, the fruit was really ugly fruit or is bad fruit. Or, you know, oh, maybe like somehow they had the Levitical code all of a sudden. And, you know, he knows to offer the goat. And it's like, well, if you go to the Leviticus and you read it, it's like, no, fruit offerings, great offerings and, and, and animal sacrifices, they're all the same. So it's all the same. So, so what, what we have to realize here is like we want to play Da Vinci Code. We want to go out there and start answering all the questions and filling all the gaps. And the text doesn't say that. The text actually is doing us a favor because it doesn't want us to focus on what we don't know. It wants us to pay full attention to what we do know. And as readers, we want to stray out. We want to get out there and try and define and overdefine. And it's going, and, and embrace the white space of the picture. Embrace what you don't know. Because it's the white space, it's what you don't know, that makes it so crystal clear of what he is he's trying to say. He's not Fitzgerald. He's not going to give you details that are, that are stray. He's going to give you the details you need to know. And so what has he done? What he's done is he's given you just enough details to empathize with what Cain is experiencing because he's only telling you what Cain knows. Does God know more than Cain? Absolutely. Does Abel probably understand something that Cain doesn't understand by the time of the end of the story? Probably so. But the scripture doesn't give us that. So the scripture's not telling us to go and dig out what we think and, you know, hypothesize what Cain's thinking or Abel's thinking or Abel's thinking and God's thinking, rather. But he's saying, I want you to sit for a second and what does it feel like when somebody in your life has arbitrary favor? Anybody experienced this before? Isn't this what life is like, that we don't have all the details all the time? Anybody here have a sister or a brother who is like, they're so good-looking, there's almost no... You know, like, there's, the only thing that's better quality about their good, good looks is their brains and they're so smart... That, that it's almost hard to tell which is more important, the way that they look or the way that they think. They're just so successful. Everything they touch is gold. Has anyone ever experienced this before? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Maybe you're just leaving me out to dry here, right? This is what it's saying. It's like, have you ever been in a situation where it seems like you just didn't get the memo? Why is it that everyone else is doing the same things that I'm doing, but they're getting the good results and I'm getting the bad results? Anybody with me on that? No, just me. So, so this is what it's saying. It's like, have you ever experienced arbitrary favor around you? What do you do with that? It does not give you any recollection or indication as to, as to why Abel is being favored. I mean, to be favored by your, by your dad is one thing. To be favored by God? I mean, how, like, you know, is that, like, what a wrestling concept. Like, how unhumanizing or, or devaluing that feels that, why does this person get favor and I don't have favor? But isn't that exactly how it feels in life? This is what it's doing. This is what the passage is doing. It's demanding that we don't always have the answers in 16 verses of life. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's stirring this up. Now, next passage, verse 6. Now for a second, it pulls us off of uh, the empathy of Cain and out of Cain's shoes, and it brings us back to the presence of God. And so God speaks. And all of a sudden, the feelings that we should have been feeling in reading the first couple of verses now become uh, conf- now have to confront and now have to, to, to engage and, and reconcile to what God is saying. So God says in verse 6, then the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, and I have it in yellow here because this becomes the hinge. We don't want to read and interpret. Not everything in the Bible uh, is, is ultimately true in the sense that not every voice has the same amount of, of weight. We want to highlight the God words, the red words. This, you know, it's like you're going to see even, even today and as an example of how Abel misinterprets what God is saying. And just because somebody says it and God doesn't correct it doesn't make it right. So these are precious words to us. These are the anchor points of the story. It says, verse 7, if you do what is right. This is what, so he's like, yeah, I get it. I know that there's favor. I know that there's arbitrary favor. I know that some people get, have it easier than others. And there's haves and have nots and rich and poor. I know that. 
aren't you gonna, are you going to address that, God? Are you going to speak to that? Are you going to comfort that? This is what God says. We, can't, we, we want him to say more. We want there to be more between the lines, but this is what he says. And this is sometimes how he speaks to me and how he speaks to you. He might be saying this exact word to you this morning. Verse 7, if you do what is right, will you know, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. So, right, we start with Cain. We're empathizing with him. We're frustrated like him. Why is my brother just like everything he touches is gold? And he's humble. Ugh. Everybody likes him because he's like good looking and smart and he has favor. And then he's humble, so it's like really hard to peg him. And he's, and he's downcast. Some of us came in this morning and our, and our heads are downcast. We're, we're, we're downcast, like we're upset about something, you know? And we feel that. And so that's like, I'm with you, Cain. Like, I get that. God doesn't get that because he doesn't live there, but we live there. So we get that. And then we go to God. And we're like, God, give him the answers, man. Give him the pat on the back. It's going to get better for you, man. Like, totally. Like, he, you know, Abel's going to have a turn, then you're going to have a turn. And fairness is justice, and you're going to get it. And everything's going to work out. And eventually the blessed will have to bless the unblessed. And the haves will have to bless the have-nots. So you tell him, God, like, comfort him. God says none of these things, right? Right? This is the frustrating. This is a frustrating thing that is, that is ultimately shaping us. It needs to shape us. So we go to God, and God says, you know, Cain, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, there's a critter that's at the door. It's coiled in the corner and looks small. It's got muscles in it. It's going to jump on you like that bee, and you are not going to win. <laughs> this is what he tells them, okay? It doesn't give the answer we want. It gives the answer that it is. So all of a sudden, it's like, it's like our empathy with Cain is put right in front of truth. And as we step back as a third-party person, as a fly on the wall, and we watch the two things, although sometimes it's, it, it's, it's hard, it's, sometimes it's hard to, to see ourselves in the mirror and see and understand the self-wallowing and the pity and the, and the loathing that we experience because our problem is always really big. But how do you guys recognize it's really easy to see it from a third-party perspective? So all of a sudden, we're with Cain, we get it. Then we step out of the body, right? We step out of the shoes of Cain. We see God interact with Cain, and you see how God's truth is next to Cain's kind of like angsty, upset, teenage loathing problem here. And you, and you, and you see it all unfold, and you're like, yeah, God is right. You see what just happened? He just helped you see what you don't see by helping you see what Cain didn't see from the beginning of the story. In the beginning, you saw only what Cain saw. Then he invites you out to see what God sees in the midst of that and shows you what you were not seeing a moment ago before God speaks to Cain. So that's the idea. He's pulled you into the story. He's made you empathize. You couldn't just chalk Cain up for being just a bad guy you know, with a problem that we don't have. He says, we're like Cain. That's what the story is saying. We experience this. And when we experience it, we're going to confront God, and God's going to speak to us the same way that Cain does. If you do what is right, you will be accepted. So what, is, what have we learned? What, what have we been reminded by this interaction with God? We've been reminded that ultimately if we're Cain's or Abel's or if we're presidents or if we're you know, low, lowly peasants, like no matter where we are in the spectrum, that ultimately God is providing everything we need. This is all, the, this is all that he's saying. He's not saying anything more. He's not saying anything less, but he's saying God is a generous host. So it's almost as though, I mean, he says it right here. He says, look, like, I'm going to accept you if you do what is right. My fairness, my justice doesn't have to be reconciled with fairness or your version of fairness. And if you follow me, if you trust me, if you do the right thing, Cain, you are going to be accepted in your time. So it's almost like you're at this party, right? And God is this generous host. I mean, that's the picture in Genesis 1. He's this massive, better than great Gatsby party hoster. And he's just rolling out all this like ocean and food and, and hills and, and, and paradise with him. He's rolling all this stuff out. And we all have enough. We all have enough food. We all have enough um, care. We all have enough supply. We have this, this relationship where we are at a place we didn't build. We are, we are receiving fruit we didn't plant. This is the place that, that, that we're living. And so imagine you're at this party. And, and everybody's having a great time, and you see your friends, and you're talking to people, and everything's great. And then, and then that, that brother that comes in, you know, the one that's, like, really good-looking, or the sister who gets all the attention, and the boys talk to her, and she doesn't, you know, they don't, they talk to you only to get to the sister and that kind of thing. They come in, and, you know, you're always aware of that. And so they come in, and it's like, it's like he brings out this, like, special little cupcake and just hands it to him. And all of a sudden, right, isn't this human nature? You're like, what? 
what happened here? Like, like how, how, how come I, like, there's all these questions that we ask as human beings. When other people get the things that we wish that we had and we're doing the things that everyone else is doing and we're not getting them, it's like we're in the middle of paradise, but this cupcake comes, and, and, it's, like, and it's like nobody tells you, how do I get a cupcake? I want a cupcake, God. I don't want to just have, you know, my, my sushi and my shrimp and my cocktails. I want the cupcake. I want the, I want the thing that the other person has. And, he, and, he's, and he's telling Cain, and this is what he, I believe he's speaking to, he says to us in, in this story, he's just going, look, if, if you do what is right, you will be accepted. If you do what is right, if you have faith, if you live by faith, you will have exactly what you need, when you need it, wherever you need it, and you don't have to ask for a thing more. He's not saying that Abel is, you know, more accepted than Cain. He's not saying that Abel is more of a human being than Cain. He's not saying that Abel is anything, really, other than, he has favor, and, and ultimately, we do know through the rest of the passage, if we wrestle with texts like this and move on, is that he does bless people, you know, in, prior, in, in sort of a, a, a sequential order. You know, I thought about this, you know, like if you guys are around like when Facebook first came out, or Spotify's like this too, or Gmail, like they'll give like a certain amount of people the first rights to the thing to like build excitement about it. And then the other people will spread it to their friends. It's a, it's a marketing genius thing that everybody does now is you don't just release it hog wild to everybody. You give it to a certain amount of people. And this to me, as you wrestle with this and look at things like Abraham, there's this whole idea of selection and election and how come certain people get the thing and other people don't get the thing? Does that mean God loves people and doesn't? It's, it's none of those things. What you see over time is that God in his wisdom, or maybe he was just doing Spotify before Spotify did Spotify, is blessing certain people to bless other people. That's what he's doing. He's saying, Cain, everybody's invited to the party. I don't not love you but I do ask you to trust me. And what you have in me, in the 16 verses that you do have, minus the 32 verses you wish you had of this Bible and this truth, what you have is an opportunity to trust. This is the only thing that you have. It's the only thing that's expected. I'm not gonna tell you where the cupcake came from. I'm not gonna give you a cupcake. I'm not gonna tell you a cupcake's coming. I'm just asking you to trust me because that's your portion. And that's ultimately all you need. And I'm doing you a favor by not writing in extra verses and telling you what you need. I'm giving you an opportunity to trust me because you will never have enough verses. You will never have enough truth. You'll never have enough understanding. You'll never have, because that, that, that is, in a sense, that is, in a sense, retaking the fruit. It is the desire to know it all and have it all. He's like, that's only dangerous and that's only going to kill you. That's what it's doing. It's, 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 it's saying, are you going to live by your definition of right and wrong and what's fair and just, or are you going to trust mine? It's always an ask to trust. It's always a request to trust. We're gonna read through, fly through really some of these verses at the end to kind of like make sure we hang on to some of these themes in the spiral here. But this has to do with a back out of more of a macro picture of sin and its consequence. Verse eight, now Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. So you see this word here like let's. It used to be the only time that anybody said let's was God creating the world, like let us you know, create man in his own image. So you see that he's taking the word that God used to use and now he's striking authority not over the ground but over his brother. And then it says he brings him out to this field and attacks him. What does that remind you of? That, that's not, that's not the, the picture of a man, of a civilized ruler, of a king, of an image bearer. That's the picture of a snake. That's the picture of an animal. Now he's fused with this animal so much that he's, he's not ruling over the beast. The, the beast is ruling over him. And we're going to see even people like Jacob and, 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 and Esau and some of these like when he comes in and goes to take the inheritance, it's like he's got real, real hairy and he kind of eats like an animal. He just kind of eats. This is the picture that the Bible's trying to show us. If we don't rule over the animals, the animals rule over us and we become barbaric and we become mammals and we have sex like animals and we kill people like animals. We talk to each other like animals. There's no rule. There's no authority line. And that's what it's, that's what it's showing you. And so it reminded me, honestly, of this. Uh, I saw this TED Talk one time of, of the Columbine mom. If you guys were alive long enough, like I think it was in 99 when I was like a freshman in high school, these two kids came in and it was like one of the first school shootings. Now it happens all the time. It's almost like, yeah, it's like, when's that gonna happen next? That was like a really big deal back in 1999. And I, and I saw the TED Talk and the mom is just like, you know, you want the mom to be crazy. Like you really do need the mom to be like this outlying kind of crazy person who doesn't take care of kids. And the mom, you know, she's written all these books and talked about it and she's just grieved in, in, in all the ways that you could only imagine of being the mom of something like that. And, and, and when you do the studies and all the other kinds of shooters and, and even things like in, in genocide stories of history and Hitler and all that kind of things, these people, like, like you wouldn't spot them on the street. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's my point. You wouldn't spot them on the street. The mom talked about the days leading up and the weeks leading up and, and him as a child and there wasn't a lot of difference. 
And the friends would testify to that. And the friends of the, the parents of the friends would testify to that. It, it, it's not that evil is like this big gargoyle that comes out with like a Halloween mask on. It's just like it's in each and every one of us. And it is a decision by choice over time, sometimes small, sometimes big. But ultimately, across the board, what we find in some of these like kind of heinous crimes of American history is it's somebody in a basement. They got really mad about how they got fired or how somebody got what they deserved or about how women are the problem or about how, you know, a certain race is the problem, about how one person is the problem. They latched onto that thing. And and this guy, Peterson, uh, Jordan Peterson, the psychiatrist guy that I was talking about earlier, he's talking about Cain and Abel. He says it this way, is like, the only reason why Hitler is Hitler is because he's smart. There's actually a lot more evil in and around us than we, we give credence to. And he's going, if you mix enough pain with enough pride, evil will always be the result. If you mix it, we all have a lot of pain. Pain's relative. And we always think that everybody else's pain is stupid. I'll get over it until we're in it. And you'd be surprised if you looked at yourself in the mirror. If you were to step out of your own shoes and look at the way that you acted and thought about the way you dealt with your pain. It's all relative and subjective. And we think our pain is big and others is not. It's, it's, we're all pain is pain. The question is, will we handle that pain in pride or handle that pain in faith? And this is what God is doing, I believe, with this passage. He takes us by the hand, and he looks over the chasm of Cain, and he says, I want you to look down there. He goes, you're not that much different from him. That's what this story is doing. That's why it's invited us in this way. I mean, it's a very extreme cautionary tale. Obviously, we're not murderers in here, you know, by God's grace. But it's like, you've got pain and you've got pride too, so what's stopping you from doing what he did? Or doing at least a miniature version, a scaled-down version of what he did. He's going, that thing is, that, that chasm is catching all of us. That chasm is not exclusive to anybody. It could take any one of us. I bet you if we went up in the mic today, we would talk about certain people that you would never think the things they would say and do. Because even the days leading up to it, they don't act like that. But all of a sudden, this correct mixture of pride and pain comes to take their heart. And that evil, that crouching thing, it was so small on the side of the corner of the heart. And then it just jumped out. And grabbed hold of that person's of inner devices and their, and their motives. And they were completely blind and fogged to their decisions. And, and sometimes they walk out of it and they can actually see the carnage in the river mirror. Sometimes they never do. And that's what we're starting to see with this spiral. I'll keep continuing reading these verses. But we're seeing that there's, there's worse things than just eating an apple. Like the curse continues to get worse and worse. And we can make decisions today that actually make it harder to come back and return. We always have this idea, oh, I'll follow God tomorrow. I'll follow God in five years. I'll get my act together. I'll do the da da and I'll wait till this happens. He's going, don't mess with this thing. Don't mess with this animal. It's killing you. It will kill you. And tomorrow will be harder to turn from it than today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Turn today. Don't wait for tomorrow. This thing is dangerous. It, is, it, is, it does not care about your kids. It does not care about your life. And it does not care and have mercy on you. It will prey on you just because you're weak. It's warning you. This is what the story is about. He says, where is your brother Abel? Just like in Genesis. So this is a repeat. You're going to see some of the repeats here. But this is just like, hey, where are you, Adam? Look at this. Same question. Where's your brother Abel? All of a sudden, it's like, I don't even, it's not only just that I'm a little bit lost. Now I've like, now my sin is, has, has spewed itself on somebody else. You see how that happens? Now the spiral has gotten from bad to worse. We thought it was just bad because we were fighting, Adam and Eve were fighting in the garden. Now it's like, now we're killing brothers. He goes, where, where are you? Uh, uh, where are you, Cain? Where's your brother Abel? Same exact question, but a different little twist. Next verse, or verse nine continued. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Or keeper to keep, that's what the priest was supposed to do in the garden. It was to guard and to keep. Now, Cain is a worker of the field, but he's not a keeper anymore, is he? And he discovers this. Keeper means to be a priest, to be a guarder, not just to get things done, but to do them in God's terms and timing and to hold kind of a caring nature over the ground. He goes, am I a keeper? Well, clearly the statement says he's not. He doesn't think that he is. He's not a priest. He's not responsible for anybody. He's not responsible for justice or how his actions impact anybody else. He's for himself, by himself. He's his own man. See how the spiral continues. It's getting worse. That's what the, that's what the reading is saying. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? And every time in the Bible, when, when God or Moses or somebody says, what have you done? It is, it, it's the theme music of the snake. The snake's not in the story, but he's there. That's what the Bible wants you to know, is every time that, that you hear that question, what have you done? What have you done? What have you made of yourself? Can you believe you've gone this far? Can you believe how bad it's gotten? What have you done? He wants to appeal to you, counsel you. He's not asking the question because he doesn't know it's been done. He wants to counsel you and ask you the question to wrestle in your own heart. Have I become a Cain? Have I become the, the seed of the serpent? I've been waiting for, the, for, for the, the snake crusher, but I've become the snake. That's what he's saying. Watch out. I've been talking about you. You, you could become the seed of the, of, the, of the serpent. Lord says, what have you done? Listen 
Your brother's blood, it cries out from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work on the ground, it no longer yields its crops from you, for you. It was before the curse, if you guys are reminded that the curse, the ground was cursed, but Adam was never cursed. Because of Adam, the ground is cursed. That's what Genesis 3 said. But then we asked the question, okay, well, all right, ground can be cursed. Like, can a man be cursed? You know, that's the whole spider thing. Like, how bad is this thing going to get? Can a man be cursed? Well, what does uh, verse 11 say? If he wants to, he could be cursed. If he wants to, you're under a curse now. You've chosen away from God. It's like if, if, if you take one step away from the garden, you're one step away, but now you could take another step, you'd be two steps away. It's like, oh, I guess I hit, the, I guess I hit rock bottom. God's going, it can get worse if you want it to get worse. There's ways that you can create our own little heavens and hells right here. We don't have to wait to die for that. He's going, it could get worse. You're complaining about where you are. It could get worse. Be careful. Be careful you don't allow the circumstances of your life to rob you of the opportunity to have faith and trust in the one, the only one that can save you. Today, if you hear his voice return, don't wait. It will take you. It's more powerful than you think. It's more subversive than you think. It's more subtle than you think. It's going to take you down this path if you're not careful. Now you are under a curse, driven from the ground. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today, you're driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. See that the angst is still there, right? So there's a difference between regret and repentance. He regrets his choice. I don't think he, he I don't, I'm not sure he's learning from the decision, but he's, he's, he's regretting the decision, that's for sure. And notice how he's going to respond to not what God's saying, but what he thinks God is saying. This is what he thinks God is saying, but that's not ultimately what God is saying. Remember, you know, Eve got it wrong outside the garden, and Adam got it wrong, and, and even Moses gets it wrong, and Noah gets it wrong. And so we're seeing the interpretive lens of what Cain thought he heard. And he's ultimately, comes down to it, he's not really responding to God. He's responding to what he thinks God said. And the Lord corrects him. Verse 15, the Lord says to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. He's not driving him anywhere. He's allowing him to live in the consequences that he chose. And just that little trap, there's, see that, the, the, the little animal, the little snake, is, is already twisting the narrative and sealing his fate even more. God's against me. He kicked me out of the garden. He doesn't want me to return. I'm no good here. I, 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 Abel was the good one. I'm the bad one. You see that? It's like, it's, it's building that, that venomous, cancerous thought in his life. And he's, got no, he's not gonna head backwards. You know, that's the spiral. It's just continuing down. He's gonna need something to save him. He's gonna need something to reach out to him. He's gonna need somebody to counsel him back. Because he's, he's not in a great space by the end of the story. Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times. Cain's not hearing it. I mean, he, he's already made up his mind and his verdict about who God is. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one uh, who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from this place, from the Lord's presence, and lived in Nod, east of Eden. It's even east. East is always bad. The further east you go out of the garden, it's the further you are in exile, separated from God. We call it sin in systematic theology, but it really just means life without God. That is the consequence of death, consequence of confusion, um, all sorts of problems. Derek Kinder, uh, in his commentary about this verse, says that God's concern for justice of the innocent is only matched with his care for the sinner. Amen? What we see here is that the, the pronouncement that he makes to the protection of Cain shows that his protection of people is not based on their actions, it's based on their image. Is that Cain, no matter how bad he gets and how sinful he is, how many dark how, whatever situation that you're at in this theater, even today, is you maybe have entertained thoughts of anger and retribution and, and, and unforgiveness and things like that. The, the Lord would say, the Lord would say to, to this idea, I, I, will, I, will always, I will be faithful when you're not. And I will always, always be open-handed to you. I will never kick you out you know, of, of my presence. I will always receive you back if you would turn, if you would hear, if you would repent at any given time. I can do a miraculous work as you've taken 12 steps out of the garden. It would only take you really one step to return. But if that step is done in faith, if it's done in listening, if it's done in trust and not in control, you could return to me. And so that's what God is saying, right? All right, this is the essential question, the intentional question rather for today. I think it all sums up in this. As you consider what's in front of you, um, you have 16 verses that you understand. You know a little bit of the story. Maybe you think you know the whole story, but 
you don't. Or maybe you know that you don't know all the story, but you don't, and you don't. We only have a little slice, a sliver of understanding. We don't know what eternity holds. We don't ultimately really know what God's character altogether is like. We don't know we know as a, as a, as a foggy image. We know some of the truth. We, we remember some of the truth, or at least the parts that we want to remember. But ultimately, we don't understand it. And this is, I think, what the question is causing us to wrestle with, that there's seasons in life, matter of fact, all of life, that we don't understand what's going on. We cannot see, we cannot see the entire picture. And in a fallen and broken world, the sons of Adam and Eve, we are wrought with fear and shame. It is part of it. It is part of the fall. You will experience fear today. You might have masked it or covered it up or danced it up, but you're experiencing that. You're experiencing shame. God is not um, uh, unable to handle that problem, but the question becomes, are we going to respond in pride or in trust? Are we going to respond in pride or in faith? We look forward into a passage like Hebrews 11, verse 4, and now we can really grapple what this verse means as he kind of, the writer of Hebrews provides a commentary backwards to Cain and Abel. This is what uh, Hebrews 11 chapter, or verse 4 says. He's the first hero of the faith. What did he do? What did Abel do? This is what it says. He, he was already doing what was called for by the law without the law in his hands. He was doing what Abraham did without the promise of Abraham. He was doing what Noah did without knowing who Noah even was. By faith, this is the operative term, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. Does that mean that it smelled better, it looked better? It wasn't the qualitative nature of what he offered. It was the posture in which he offered it. He did it, what? By faith. This is, this is what the whole thing in Hebrews ties it all together. And what, what makes Abel acceptable, what, makes, what could have made Cain acceptable, what made Noah acceptable, what made Abraham acceptable, it's not the what, it's the why. It's the posture. And this is the key word. This is what God is always looking for when we have 16 verses, but we don't have the rest. Faith. Trust in me. This is the command. This is what he's asked Cain to do. This is what he asked us to do. By faith, Abel brought an offering because of its faith that's better than what Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. He is the first father of the faith. We don't know. I don't know. Maybe they had a little conversation there just outside the Garden of Eden. They said, hey, make sure to bring the firstborn of your flock, you know. But he doesn't know that in the scripture most importantly, he doesn't tell us that, so we must assume that he doesn't know or that we're not supposed to know if he knew. And it presents an opportunity to see that Abel had an opportunity to do what Cain didn't do, that it was possible to walk by faith and not by sight. It was possible to do the right thing, that he either had it in him or God had provided it. In some way, we know that Abel's decision brings a sense of conviction to Cain, that he somehow knew that he was supposed to bring the offering in faith. Cain brought an offering, but it Clearly, just by deduction, we can at least reason without reading between the lines that it wasn't brought in faith. Abel's was. So this is the way that I think we can look at this. A couple of sentences on the board. There's a lot. So Becca helped me out to help you guys read it better. So it's actually two slides. This is the language of God. This is the thing, like, we will never know the whole Bible. And, and we'd like to know the whole Bible. We'd like to know the whole picture, but we, we never will. And this is what you see, the thread of Hebrews shows us and paints this picture throughout Old Testament and New Testament. If you know Jesus or if you don't, if you, if you followed him or not, this is what the ultimate kind of like core principle that people before Jesus look to him towards or people that are after him that do know Jesus follow him in. And it's always this one common language. It's always the question of faith. It's always the question of trust. It's always the question of in the unknown, do I trust what is known? Do I trust the person that is known? So consider this sentence. It's a run on sentence, crazy sentence. But if you know the Bible or not, if you understand your circumstance or not, if your prayers are answered or not, if you are in the middle of deep sin or not, if you have walked with God your entire life or now taking your first step, there is nothing that disqualifies you and there is nothing that overqualifies you from your next step of faith. On good days and bad days, if you've been following him for 50 years, if you've just started following him, the only step that you have to take is faith. It's the only common step. It is the great equalizer of all people. No one is righteous apart from faith. No one is righteous apart from faith. Nobody, nobody can be considered righteous without hearing what God says and following what it says. This is the mistake that Adam made in the beginning. Because you've listened to your wife, in other words, you've listened to your wife and not me, 
because you have not listened, because you have not followed, because there isn't a trust here. It could show up in 50 years or in two years. It could be murder or it could just be jealousy for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. But the point is, is that the consequence of lack of faith will always be deadly. This is the common highest virtue of heaven as well as the common biggest stumbling block of man is when you don't know, when you don't have all the answers, will you trust? This will become the only antidote. The only solution that we have outside the garden is faith in his grace. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. He's offered us the gift. He's always offering us, even today, he's speaking to you. He wants to warn you about things. He wants to encourage you. He wants to talk to you about the things, the things that maybe you don't want to talk about, but it's the things that you need to know. And all you need to do to reach out and grab hold of that thing that he's given to you freely is faith. This is what he's asked Abraham. This is what he's asked Sarah. This is what he's asked, you know, me. This is what he's asked you. It's always been about faith. There was a discussion among the, 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 the Pharisees. You know, some Pharisees, their, their job was to really like, uh, extend the law, like build a fence and explain how the law is supposed to be interpreted. And so the 613 laws would be all these thousands and thousands of laws. But there was other rabbis whose job was to kind of simplify the law and, and sum it up. And that's why they would come to Jesus as a rabbi and say, hey, what's the most important commandment? So I can sum up these 613 on the go and I don't have to like research all this. And he goes, you know, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and strength. But some of, uh, of the Hebrew scholars and some of the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the day believe that you could even sum it up into one, which is Habakkuk 2.4. It's on, this, on the screen. I'll read it aloud. Uh, Habakkuk 2.4, if you have it in the NIV. It says, see, the enemy is puffed up. The seed of the serpent sneaks its way into the corner of our heart. It puffs up and it wants to live by pride. It mixes pain with pride. His desires, they're not upright. There's too much pain. There's too much pride. It's locked in and it's causing death and decay. This is, the, this is the verse that is the guiding principle of, of, of Old and New Testament, of anybody that's ever desired to get back to that garden. Trust in God. The righteous will live by faith. If it's going well, trust in God. If it's not going well, you still need to trust in God. If your brother has something that you wish that you had and you don't understand why that person has it, your job is not to worry about the brother. Your job is to trust in him. You will be accepted if you trust in him. You will have what you need if you trust in him. If you get your eyes off of where you wish that you were or what God hasn't done yet and you simply look at what God has given you and the 16 verses that he's told you to do, be thankful you have the 16 verses and trust in him because that's the only thing that's required and it's the only thing that can save. It's trusting in him, trusting him for salvation, trusting in him for life. So I thought about it in this way, in my own silly little like analogy as I'll close and, um, and pray, pray us out today. But uh, I used to be a waiter and... Uh, when I first started, you know, being a waiter, I was always, like, looking at my tips. Like, I wanted to make sure that I was, like, getting enough money. And I'd be like, oh, that cheap person, how come they didn't, you know, tip me? And I would, like, start to try and, you know, like, you would want to, like, try and make sure that you waited tables the same way. If you got a big tip, you're like, oh, they really like the water. I'll just bring the water out, you know. And then you'll bring the water out and, like, they don't tip you anyways. It's kind of like, then you realize, what you realize as a waiter is, like, the person pretty much walks in there and they're going to tip you what they're going to tip you unless you, like, really mess it up. People are going to tip what they're going to tip because they, they come with that kind of, like, character trait or whatever. And so uh, you, you spend a lot of time as a waiter and you're thinking about the hostess and, like, hey, I need the hostess to, like, get me more tables. Or you're thinking about the kinds of people that you want and the patrons. And you're thinking about, well, how come this person got a tip? And you'd ask the other waiters, like, how much did you make tonight? And you know, compare it and all that stuff. And you get, like, upset, you know, about how come you didn't get tipped and those, those sorts of things. And, and, and I thought about that, you know, as reading this passage and thinking about that is because when you're a waiter, like, I guess at the point, the point is, is when you do it enough times, you realize there's a lot that's just not in your control. Like there's nothing you can't control what the cooks do. You can't control if the bartender's on time. You can't control the people that come in. You can't decide who's going to sit in your table. You get three sat in your section. You get one sat or none sat in the section. You could waste all your time getting worried about that, or you could just focus on just bringing the drinks, just bringing the food. And this, I think, is what we see from this Cain and Abel as we try and sum it all up, the idea of the righteous being you know, marked by faith. Is this idea, look, like we have a lot less control than we think than we do. And we have enough on our hands as it is. And so whatever decision is in front of you today, whatever moment is about to meet you as you go out to get your kids and move on into the next thing of life or go to school and so forth, the question is never, can I get the raise or will I get the right patron or will I get the tips that are due to me or will I get the things that I need? The question is not like, how come God doesn't answer this question or do that? The reality is, that, that, if, that if the cross is real and that if his heart is the same as it was in Genesis 1 as it is in Revelation and now is that God is always providing exactly what you need right when you need it. You have everything you need right now to trust in him. 
And therefore, you have everything you need to be accepted and to live in the garden. That's the only thing you have, and it's the only thing you need. So this is, your, this is your idea. You have this little section, and you can make it as much of a heaven or hell as you want it to be. And ultimately, as much as we think, it's, it's, we find out hard way or the easy way, it's not because we get better customers or because we have a better host or because we have a, we're cooler than our brother or brothers. Because it doesn't ever come down to those things. It comes down to that simple, simple question. What am I doing with what God has said to me? We're way more responsible than Abel because we have the law now. We, we have memorized, and we also have Jesus and all of his teachings, and we have lots of experience, and we have the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of responsibility. It doesn't just come down to, quote, do the right thing anymore. It comes down to a lot more than that. But ultimately, the mechanism is the same. Will we trust in him, or will we live in the place of doubt and despair? Will we trust in him, or will we give temptation of, of pain and pride? Will we trust in him? This is all that's required. It's the only thing that's needed to trust in him. Will you trust in him today? Uh, let me close in prayer, um, and then uh, we're going to be dismissed. So, um, Jesus, I thank you, God, that, um, um, that it's never too late. It's never too late. And right now, I, I, I pray, I hope, and I know that you're visiting each of us in these little places that the enemy continues to kind of squirrel its way in. And in that place that, without you, it was only gripping our hearts. It was only a losing battle in those places that we were we were given to temptation and animalistic behavior, God, I thank you, Jesus, that you've come to bring a better word and that you have come to bring a better sacrifice and an offering and that we can look to you as sons, as sons, never as orphans, never as somebody that's not getting taken care of. And so for each of us, as we, as we go from this place, um, it's just important we pray for each other, we pray for ourselves and for our spouse and our kids, God, that you would deliver us from temptation and protect us from the evil one. God, would you deliver us from temptation? And it's not ultimately the schools and the work environment that causes the snake to come into our heart. It's not that. It is the decision not to trust. And God, I thank you. The only thing we need is the only thing we have. It's just to trust in you. So for the 16 verses of truth that we have in our heart, God, that we would trust in those things, not focus on what we don't have, but knowing what we do, knowing who we are and whose we are in you. We thank you for this time. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.